Magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. Excuse me, does this do anything for you? How about this? Or this? Because this is the sort of thing we play in Adagio. Slowed down bluesy jazz. So dial us up. Tuesday evenings at 6. You might like it. You might even hear something that really moves you. Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at Sur de Springs in Acadia National Park and celebrating 10 years in downtown Bar Harbor. Two locations with one mission, to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a special guest, and it is my honor to have Chief Brenda Commander of the Holton Band of Maliseets on the show. Thank you for joining us, Chief Commander. Um, and to start off, uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yes, hi. Good morning, Donna, and thank you for inviting me to be on the show this morning. My um, pleasure. I um, was born in Holton, Maine, which is um, near the New Brunswick Canadian border, at Roasty County, and <coughs> I'm the I'm the third of ten children. Um, I've been tribal chief since 1997 for the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians, and. I'm the first woman chief of our tribe, and it's it's been challenging. I bet. And exciting, <laughs> and um, hoping to be a positive role model for other women and young girls to to work with politics in you know the political process and with our tribe. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Chief Commander. Where is the, the uh, Holton Band of Maliseets uh, located? The Holton Band of Maliseets is located in Littleton, Maine. Headquarters is in Littleton. Um, we're actually two hours north of Bangor, and we our lands are Holton, Littleton, Monticello, and we have... Um, 
we don't have contiguous lands. We have scattered lands, and so we have property in those three small towns. Yeah. So uh, Holton is probably the biggest, the biggest town that. Uh, it is. Yes, it is. And uh, how far away is Holton from your your reserve? Holton is about six miles away from our community and lands. Mm-hmm. And how many? Um, Tribal members do you have? We have about 1,200 tribal members, and we have um, over 1,000 acres of federal trust lands, which means lands that are held in trust by the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And Now, I know uh, the uh, Penobscot Nation, we have uh, a number of departments within our community, like, you know, uh, public safety, Health and Human Services. Uh, do you have anything that would be equivalent to those departments, or what do you have? Oh, we do. Actually, um, at this time, since we've been federally recognized in 1980, along with the Penobscot Nation and Passamaquoddy tribes, um, we had we were unorganized at that time, and with federal recognition came the ability to access federal funds and we started with minimal programs such as education, health, um, social services and have uh, really grown over the past years and now we have um, environmental programs, um, we have a Head Start, um, we have a tribal police um, now on our lands and a housing authority, um, domestic violence and sexual assault programs, Indian child welfare, and the other basic programs that we began with. Now, the um, <coughs> you mentioned law enforcement. Now, I don't believe that you that was a a program that that was right there from the beginning, I mean, right after the uh, the land claims. It took you a while to get that, right? Yes, it did. It began with, uh, when I first became elected as the chief, we met with the community, and many community members came forth to voice their concerns about how we had a lack of uh, police presence, and many issues came forth about how the Malice members would be treated by the Holton local law enforcement. And we began with the sheriff. Um, It was Sheriff um, Ted St. Pierre who came forth and actually we started talking about having our own police policing. He supported us with letters and um, we wrote grants together to try to bring in funds, but we didn't realize at that time that we needed to go to the state of Maine to ask for that authority because we, you know, we were a federally recognized Indian tribe and we felt that we had that authority to, to build a police uh, program or department, um, which is um, a part of sovereignty and uh, something that, other tribes in the in the nation did, and we didn't realize that at the time. That didn't that didn't uh, wasn't successful, 
And we continue talking with the local police departments and and ultimately went to the state of Maine. It probably took us, I would say, eight to nine years to to get the authority and right to have policing on our lands, which we now have. The uh, it's a bit technical. I I I know, and it has to do with the uh, language in the Land Claim Settlement Act, I, I believe, and it, uh, where there was some sort of question about uh, the authority of uh, the Holton Band to indeed have their own law enforcement, which is kind of strange because, you know, the Penobscots and the Passamaquoddies, you know, of course, had their own at the time. So uh, that was a little snafu in the, in the process, I, and, and it, just, uh, it just took you guys longer for some reason to get that authority, and uh, and to get that authority, you also needed to um, correct me if I'm wrong. You also needed uh, uh, a, a sort of okay, I guess, from the surrounding communities. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. It's been really difficult for us to um, move forward and to build a community and everything that comes along with the needs of community members. Um, it's taken us much longer to accomplish those things. But one thing I see is um, the Maliseets are very determined and have really been since 1980 determined to, to work on these issues that will benefit our entire membership. And we do that. We, we struggle, but we... I see that determination, um, you know, back then, and I see it today. When we see a need for our community, we have we have to work with pretty much the state of Maine to try to have that right, um, which is it's been difficult um, over the years. Uh, we're very persistent about that, and um, oftentimes we. We have to move. Um, we continue discussions and the communications, and sometimes it it's not always reciprocated back to us. And um, but that determination shows when we're finally successful. Yeah, and it seems like um, you've been uh, very successful as far as um, maybe housing goes. Um, now I, I think I, I believe that you've you've had. Tell me when your new uh, tribal headquarters building, your administration building and stuff was, was built. How many years ago was that? I would say probably, close to twenty, years ago. So that's that was quite a, quite a a while. It was when we first received uh, federal funds. We were actually located downtown in the town of Holton. We were renting space, and we were scattered then with um, the health department offices um, not at the same location. Um, and I think that I would like to attribute that to our to our um, third chief who who identified this parcel along the Meduxnikeg River, and it 
actually was our Aboriginal homelands, he identified that parcel and he said, this is where our tribal headquarters is going to be. It was a big change for all of us. We we didn't accept it at that time. We kind of questioned him about why are we moving way out in the rural area. Um, but it, in you know, looking back, it was a great decision to do that because um, we built our community there. Remember that we didn't have anything. We weren't organized. We were very poor. Yeah, we I, didn't have money. Right. Yeah. And I remember um, when I was on judiciary committee and uh, you testified on a number of bills, one of those uh, times that you testified was very powerful uh, in that you mentioned um, your, at one point you, you had no, no, uh, no land where you were living except for this. There were some houses or, or whatever, tar paper shacks or whatever. Yes. You know, tell me about that. Yes. Um, back at that time, um, the vis- back in the 70s or when uh, the other tribal nations were on the cusp of negotiating with the state on federal recognition, the Maliseets came forth and became part of that because... At that time, there was a hu- just a sense of hopelessness, poverty. And the townspeople themselves were very openly um, blatant about us. You mean racist and prejudice? Very, yes. Yeah. And it's recorded actually in the, in the books about... Um, you know, how dirty the malice, and it just sure. very yep. hurtful. So many of the Maliseet families lived near near the town, um, the town dump, and many families didn't have even floors. They were gr- it was the ground. So and they, they didn't have even dilapidated trailers. Oh, they had worse off than that. Yes. It was yeah. it was just horrible conditions. And what happened was um I think that brought the Maliseets to start talking with people was late in the seventies, um seven adults from that community from where they lived at the town dump Actually, to keep warm in the winters, they had there was a little store close by, and they would go there to buy sterno, and uh, otherwise called canned heat. Mm-hmm. They called it Pink Lady, and it was a concoction of the canned heat and straining that, and they did that and it so was they could keep warm, mm. too. Besides that, it would keep yeah. them warm. They got a batch of poisonous... Um, canned heat, sterno, and seven adults died in 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 our community. That's and they had big families. At one event, I mean, they this one time, now let's understand what we're talking about. And correct me again if I'm wrong. Now, in, in our community, years ago, years and years ago, they would take sterno and they would strain it and put it with something because it was so cheap to buy and they would drink it. Because it, you know, it was uh, their uh, replacement for alcohol, and and sometimes once in a while, they would drink too much of it, or not mix it right, or whatever, and then we'd have uh, 
uh, some deaths. So is this what occurred? Yes, yes. That occurred, and no one in, in the town had said anything at all. Um, you know, if it had been a family from town that was not, or was not part of our community, there would have been mourning, and, and it wasn't that way at all. After that time, and I'm talking about the late 70s, the Vista volunteers came into town. They have heard about this news that these people had died, and they came into town, and they talked with the Malsey members and tried to talk to them about their rights and to see if they could help with the living conditions there. Well, between then and, and the recognition, in the winter, the town, the town itself, where the bulldozer came there and bulldozed those homes. Okay, flat. now, let, let's, let's understand this situation. There were some uh, tar paper shacks yes. uh, in, in the dump area yes. up there, and people were living in those. Yes. And the town said, now, now again, I want to get this straight story right. The town didn't like that. Right. They basically thought it was an eyesore. Or Absolutely. You know. said that, yes. So um, they, did they give these uh, people in these houses warning to get out? No. So they just showed up, and what time of year was this? That was in the middle of winter. Okay, so in the middle of winter, they show up to these these houses, shacks, and what did they do then? They started bulldozing the homes, and the people had to leave immediately and to try to live with other people that they knew, or they had nothing, absolutely Were they nothing. allowed to take things out of those little... Little shacks they had. What they could grab, I'm sure, yes. So what they could carry. Yes. And then, yep. yeah. And not only that, but um, at that same time, the the Maliseet members or community, they would not deliver their mail. To they, that particular site? No, they wouldn't go to that site. They wouldn't have their mail delivered. Um no members of the Malisee, no matter where they lived, would get their mail. I they see. would physically have to go to the post office and get general delivery. I see. So so they could live in town and still not right. get their delivery. Yes. That's pretty amazing. And but and, and this was when in nineteen seventy It was late seventies. Yes. yes. And yeah, they would say, you know, this, they're an eyesore to our to us, and and just be totally um, open about how they felt. Um, so and let's just so there was a there's a big jump between the seventies, where you had no land, no land base, no actual no actual cohesive community where you you had a tribal governmental structure. You were sort of spread out. So after the um, uh, now, the, the land claims have something to do with you being able to get this land? and Yes, yes. Um, you know, over the past 31 years since we been became recognized, everyone's not happy with the land claims, and especially, you know, we question our own leaders who were there negotiating. and um, But I think... Things were so dismal, and 
there's so much hopelessness in our community that they felt that if we um, negotiated and only had access to federal funds that perhaps there was a chance for housing, perhaps there was a chance for education and health and all of those things that our community really needed. It wasn't ever the state of Maine who came forth to help our members. We have done that over the past 31 years ourselves. So you've helped yourselves. It's sort of like pulling your, as they say, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes. Well, it would also help if you had some land to stand on and some boots to put on. Right. That? Absolutely. Yes. So uh, you did this. I mean, the, the, the land claims happened. You became involved with the land claims. You got some, some uh, funds. You got your land base. Uh, and this happened over a period of 30 years. Yes. You now have a uh, tribal administration building. Uh, you have uh, housing now? We do. We have um, our tribal headquarters was our first building, and then we added on to include health services. We have housing. Um, we have a Head Start. Um, school. We are just completing a two and a half million dollar um, health ambulatory clinic. Um, we are finishing a six family, two bedroom unit, and we've just moved in and completed an eight, three bedroom family unit, which, I mean, we, housing is such a need. And I think every tribal community, and that's something, but there's so many needs that we have. When we finish those projects, there are other things that we really need to do. Um, we just received a grant for an athletic field that will be <clears throat> close to the river. And I, But I think with all the priorities and needs that we have, we're still in the... Um, we're still rebuilding our community, and that's going to happen, I would say, over, you know, hundreds of years. They're always going to be re rebuilding the community and finding new ways and innovative ways to to help the members. Um, but now, as you've, you've come a long ways since yes. the 70s. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, there are, um, there are, most likely there are jobs uh, within the community. How many uh, people do you employ? We employ close to 90 now. Wow. And we are the biggest employer of our, or our tribal members. We don't just exclusively hire tribal members because we want qualified people, you know, administering our programs, but we also want our members trained so that they can come forth. When we were growing up, in my generation, education wasn't important because of survival skills. <laughs> exactly. The, the, the main thing on your agenda <clears throat> was uh, food the next day, I would Absolutely, guess. yes. And, and I remember, you know, it wasn't our, our parents would not encourage us to go to school because they needed our help at home to take care of things like getting water and, you know, just helping out at the house. Um, 
So we've really made it a priority. The tribal leadership has made it a priority to now reach out to the community and encourage education with the with the start of our Head Start school. Um, they learn the cultural language and and all of our culture um, and feel really confident about leaving there to go into the public school system, even though, um, you know, we continue working on that, that we probably have close to 40 or 50 now enrolled in, in college. That's great. Out of, uh, what did you say, about 1,200 <laughs> tribal members? Yes, yes. You get about 40 or 50 in college now. And it's ironic because um, our first chief, he was the only member of our whole tribe in the 1980 that had a high school education. Wow. So it That's would, amazing. It would know? seem like he should be our chief because he, we looked at him as being educated. Mm-hmm. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you in this society, you you have to have education to survive, and and to you know to plan and to and to move forward. And it's it's um, also over that whole entire time, we've worked to educate the general public that surround us about us and um, tr- more like building bridges with them. We're not completely there at this point, um, and I know that because I'm, I have uh, connection with the officials in town, and, you know, we, we do talk candidly, and we talk about how can we improve relations. And it's, and it's constant education um, in working with your local authorities, the town, the state, it's a little complicated yeah, and, sometimes. And, and, and you know, there's this there's this history. There's this history of 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 par- poverty and, and hopelessness and uh, and ignorance actually on I'm gonna say on the town ta- on the townspeople's part. Um and, and that, you know, just living through that and surviving that and that's that's huge. You know, I was uh, I watched uh, the Diane Sawyer show the other night about uh, hidden America, the the uh, the plains, the children of the plains, and uh, Pine Ridge had s- was so um, in really bad bad conditions, and the kids were, uh, but they they had trailers, they have trailers, not in good shape. Uh, but I th- was watching that, and I thought, you know, there there where we were, uh, maybe fifty years ago, or um, and and how did we get out of that? And I think that your community is a great example of of moving up. And uh, Donna, there's still that mindset out there that um, the taxpayers pay for us. Right. Yeah, and I know that you you contribute to your your local oh. community. And tell me a few ways you do that. Oh, uh, we so try to contribute. We actually have. Um, the Indian Roads um, priority system and any roads that lead to our lands are funded from that program. So perhaps maybe a town road, you know, we'd have access from a town road to our land. We can help the town actually build those roads, 
pave the roads and, uh, you know, work with them on other projects in town, such as um, Brooks, that maybe development can't happen, economic development cannot happen because of something that's going on with a close brook in town. We work diligently towards that. But yet, um, our tribal leadership appeared before our town council just last week. And that uh, same mindset from the 70s is still there with two of the town council members. I was shocked. I'm still in little shock about that. They feel that they, the taxpayers pay for us being there. But what I want to say is most of these grants that we receive, we compete for those. They're, they're highly competitive. Nobody just gives us money. But you, but you compete with other tribes. Other tribes, and, and sometimes states, towns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we work very hard to bring in monies. We're very resourceful. And sometimes I feel that maybe there's envy out there because there's a perception that we do have a lot of money. We're one of the poorest tribes on the eastern seaboard. Maybe it doesn't show that because, like I said, as a community members, we work very hard. We, our lands are beautiful. We practice environmental stewardship, and we hope that other people will model that when there's pesticides running into the river from the farmland because we're in potato country. And we do everything we can. We funnel millions into the local towns, and we also support local businesses. Yeah, so when those 90 people that you employ, right, they go when they buy groceries, they buy gas, um, they eat in town, mm-hmm. they, they mm-hmm. shop in town. So that's a, that's a pretty big contribution to the community right there. It is. It, it's a very big contribu- contribution, and I think... Sometimes they don't want to acknowledge that. And they will, you know, to our face say, we don't believe that. But we actually write that down and we take that with us and show them. And, um, uh, you know, suggesting that maybe there be an economic study, I think that would be wonderful for all the tribes to see exactly how much they are contributing. And it's not that the tribe says, oh, I want to be acknowledged here. I'll take, you know, a pat on the back. It's not about that at all. It's building our own, making the lives of our own members better because um, we have to worry about uh, our future generations and still our elders. And we do everything to try to uh, work towards, you know, progress of something that they need. Mm. Now, I, I also know that you've, you do some things with um, economic development. Um, you have some 8A yes, programs. Yes, we have um, two 8A businesses. One's almost at its nine-year threshold where um, it wouldn't be like sole source uh, contracts anymore. What what 8A is, is working with the Small Business Administration, and that is in Washington. Um, and also, uh, it's contracting and bidding on contracts that the federal government puts out. It's not just a Native program. It's, you know, others, other people who start businesses can also do contracting. 
Um, we do uh, information technology and telecommunications, but most of the contracts that we're going after are the military contracts, um, such as in Afghanistan and Iran. We have hub offices in Bethesda, Maryland. We have one in Honolulu, um, one in Colorado, and we're actually setting one up in Afghanistan. Hmm. And what we do is we bid on contracts just like any other any yeah. other group who may have established companies such as this. Mm -hmm. We bid on those, and then we perform, the, you know, find contractors to perform the duties, and we get percentages off of those. We also have another um, 8A um, economic business. It's called HBMI Solutions, and that will, um, that's 100% tribally owned, and that's selling broadband. Wow. And this um, past year, we have just hired a tribal member, a Maliseet member, to be the director of that. And she's now in training. And we're hoping to have that tribally um, operated by members. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. Moving ahead in, in, in technology, even. Cutting-edge stuff. Yeah. And so... I had a dear friend of mine. He was the chief of the um, Choctaw Nation. He's famous um, in Indian country, I guess. His name was Philip Martin. And he was there for uh, chief or chairman for most of, his, most of his life. He passed recently. He told me once, he, he said, you know, sometimes if it's not going to work, you have to think beyond gaming. Mm. Think beyond gaming and so that is something you know we really thought about you hear a lot about um, you know the casinos and gaming and um, in a, where we're located it wouldn't seem as though it might work for us and so we thought about that and one other thing he always said to me and it stuck with me he said don't forget where you came from no matter how successful your tribe is, do not ever forget. Mm -hmm. I'm going to interrupt you there for a second. Um, uh, you're listening to WERU, Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We're talking today with Chief Brenda Commander of the Holton Band of Maliseets. So, uh, Chief Commander, uh, we're talking about the uh, your, your talk with uh, Chief... Uh, Phillips, did you say Martin? Chief Philip Martin from Philip the Choctaw Martin. in Mississippi. And his words of wisdom about uh, you don't necessarily need a, a casino to, uh, to be successful. Yes, in the Choctaw Nation, they are very successful. But also, they have cooperation. That's something that we lack here in Maine, not just speaking for our tribe, but I know in the past that there's been a big lack of cooperation. And we're not going to be successful if we, you know, if there's roadblocks at every turn. We're only going to benefit the areas where we live and, and to help our road members. We have many, many needs. With the monies that we get for economic development, those go into local tribal programs. We, we're not, 
we don't get fully funded by the federal government, we're lacking funds for our elders or for their homes or, um, you know, discrepancies with where we want the funds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, but the funding that you do get, actually, it doesn't just stop in the community. No. It, go, it filters out. Right. Throughout the community and throughout the state. Yes. So and people just uh, seem to not understand or not want to understand that aspect of because when you bring money into the tribal communities, you also bring them those monies into the state, and that's and that's a huge help, especially uh, in these times. Mm. Um, so you mentioned uh, again we were talking about education earlier. Do you, uh, and do you know how many? Fifty, right? Fifty in uh, in colleges right now. You think? Yes. And uh, do you know um, what? Or do you have a handle on what they're uh, they're interested in in these fields? Uh, they're um, some are interested in the Wabanaki studies, and others might be interested in environmental. We have a young lady who who's um, getting a master's in her environmental. She's now in Upper State, New York, getting her master's. Um, business, healthcare, um, legal secretaries. So all over, not just... I remember when I was going to school, everyone wanted to be a lawyer. Right. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's expanded since because, you know, people understand that, hey, it's just not, it's just not the law that's, that works for us. It's, it's, it's understanding the capitalist system that we're, that we're in. And to be able to survive in that. Um, so, what are what are some of the issues um, today? These current issues that are facing the tribe. I think some of the current issues that we have is um, we still need to look for land that could be more contiguous than scattered. That's a priority for us, and. Also, um, with that, we're hoping that, you know, someday that we could hunt and fish on our lands. That's important to our members. So you need to have enough land for to hunt and fish on. Yes. Um, Yeah, that would come in line with purchasing more lands. And um, overall, I think... One thing that's important to me, many things are important to me, but this one really stays in my mind, is the um, the longevity of our members. Yeah, yeah. The, the uh, life, the lifespan. Life, or life the expectancy yeah. in, in the 80, early 80s was 45 years old. It's yeah, I mean that's and yeah. Today, now as we speak, it is fifty-five, and I guess it's closer to my heart because my father passed when he was fifty-three. When he turned fifty-three, yeah, because he worked so hard throughout his life, and yeah, um, it he, takes a takes a toll. Really does. It and does of the hardships that our ancestors have suffered and our elders and 
how hard they work to keep the family together and to put food on the table and to live off the land. And not only that, but, you know, we had also government surplus. So I can understand why my father left as young as he did Mm. and passed. Um, Just recently, my brother passed. He was 54. Wow. And, you know, it just rings home for me to in my position as tribal chief and how can i direct how can i direct the staff to to what's important overall to us some of them may not understand that but cuz we lived it and i think it's um the prevention activities that we need to continue to do prevention like having access to um, aids that help our members to quit smoking or to have um, the beautiful health center that we're building um, is incredible. It's something that we have worked for from day one is to have access to all of the, the you know, the, the doctors and the dentists and however, the diabetes mm-hmm. um, and um, educators and and all of that is critical to to further the life expectancy of our members because it will right so do you have a high uh a, a high number of uh, of, of diabetes patients we do we have diabetes and heart conditions um cancers um i'm not sure why but i think i think overall in aristic county um, the statistics show that there is a high rate of cancer, not just among the seats, but other people who who have lived in that area. I don't know why, but um, the health center will be an important factor for many, many, many years to to help our members with prevention and help them be healthy. Mm. Yeah, that is key, and especially that's key to uh, actual survival of, of, of the tribe. Um, the other thing that uh, strikes me, and I remember this when I was uh, in the legislature, is the, uh, the, the uh, incidence of children being removed from their homes. Yes. Um, there is a law which is... Uh, was passed in 1978, and it's called the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's a federal law that was passed. And they actually used our community as a case study to pass this law where we are. The original law? Yes. They used the Maliseets and Holton because the children were being taken at an alarming, alarming high rate and even when I got into office, I was just really horrified of how the actions of the DHHS were. Not DHHS's. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay. And how with our community being in one place now, they had better access to come and patrol at nights after the tribal office was closed. And they were finding 
ways to... Now, when you say they, you the, mean... The, the Department of Health and Human Services would be finding ways to actually uh, legitimately... I don't know if it was legitimate, but they would say, you know, these this family's not taking care of their their children, even if they were playing out on the lawn. They were patrolling. Our past leadership had told our community over and over that the state had authority over us. We had no say about that. We knew that was happening in our in our tribe for some time, but felt somewhat like helpless to actually come forth to take a stand against them. No one would do that. Until one night, we held a vigil within our community and there were um, the caseworker, two other caseworkers from the DHHS uh, local office, the town police and the state police came out to our our lands while we were, we were holding a community function right across the street and tried to remove two teenage young, young girls in the home. The young girls were home with their aunt, and they were actually beating that evening, beating bracelets, native bracelets. And all of this, they came and went into the home, and actually the girls escaped out of a back window but I was kind of I was ignoring all of that because I didn't know what to do our leadership said no we can't interfere with this state and they have authority over us so I didn't know what to do and so I tried to ignore that although I could see it from the building that I was at I was called by an elder to come outside she came to me and she said may I speak with you outside so I went outside, and I was a new chief then. I hadn't any idea what really had to take charge or control of that. And she said, are you going to allow them to keep taking our children? What's th th open your eyes. Don't you see what's going on over there? And she was really upset with me, and it really lit a fire because... I stopped the whole function and I gathered the tribal council outside and I said, what should we do? And um, we ended up going over and speaking with them. And ultimately that night we did take a stand. We asked them to leave our lands and, you know, don't come back here. You're not taking our children. Leave now and it was very confrontational with the local police authorities and the, and the social service workers of DHHS. They did leave. The next day, we were in total, um, I guess, second-guessing ourselves. The tribal council came to my office, and we, we were in there for most of the morning, and we really doubted what we did. We said, what did we do? Oh, my goodness. Um, what if we did need them at some day? Because we told them not to come back as if we thought they were going to listen to us. But <laughs> we said, don't come back. And what if we needed them? What, who were who we going to call? We didn't have, you know, all of the, that Indian Child Welfare Program was set up. And, and then we were there till probably noon, really wondering what to do next. 
We got a message from town that the police were coming out to take me and arrest me for interfering with an emergency removal order. Mm -hmm. And I, we were conflicted about that. And I said, if I could save one child's life from not being put in the system, because when they take our children, we didn't see them again. They were adopted out. They were put in non-native They were permanent, homes. permanently removed. Yes. Yeah. They were permanently removed. Which is a form of genocide in itself. Yes, cultural genocide. Yeah. And so this was going on for some time, for years. And I said, if this made any change, because we didn't know how this action was going to play out or affect us in the future. We didn't know if we did the right thing. We were really wondering. And I said to the tribal council, if, if it saves one child in our community, I'll go to jail. I will go. And then I thought about Representative Donna Loring. Oh. And so I gave her a call that day, that same day, and she asked me what was going on, and um, she said she would talk to officials at the state level and see what, you know, she could do to help out, and thank you, Donna, for your help, because they didn't come out, and uh, Donna had spoken with the governor's office, and they relayed the message back to Holton police authorities. Well, see, I didn't hear that. I've never heard that story before. Yes. I'm yes. glad that I, that I was able to, to do that for and you. And so that was the start of uh, changes that we weren't going to take it. We're not going to let you take our children anymore. And we're going to stand up for what's right. And we need to speak with the state about an agreement, which every tribe is entitled to... Um, I guess, work out an agreement with their states. Yeah, and I, I do remember um, setting meetings up with the, uh, the um, Attorney General's office and the tribe, yes, the and tribes in the state. Yes, and we did this for a few years. And also, I have to credit the Passamaquoddy and Donna, too, for all of this, and the Penobscots, because there was a little girl who, who had died... Um, I think of Lauren Marr. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes. State. Yeah. Yes. Yes. She was in state custody. Yep. I think in Bangor, down that way. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I opened the paper one day, and it said, group probes, a small little caption said, group probes DHHS after the death of this little girl. Yeah. And that gave us the opportunity to go before the several hearings. Yeah. We had a we held a he hearing in Ellsworth, I remember, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and uh, the judiciary committee was just bowled over from from your testimony and testimony from the Passamaquoddies, and um, I remember I also testified that day. Mm -hmm. um, and when we heard where we could go, voice our uh, here has have someone hear our voice. We, I would call Donna, and Donna would arrange for others to actually come. And we would go. We would go talk about it and any way and where we could do it to to voice our concerns. The local um, 
the local director of our de- Department of Health and Human Services in Holton had called me after a big story came out in the Bangor Daily News, and he was so insulted, and he said, how dare you do this, and how dare you say this? And I, of course, then felt like I that's what I needed to do was advocate for for our tribes and not have our children be taken the way that they have been. And that was a mission of mine, actually, mm-hmm. to see that something changed. And it was actually um, the Attorney General, Stephen Rowe, who um, said, let's sit and talk about this and, you know, let's talk about the children and not who has authority, not who has jurisdiction, talk about the children and then... We actually worked on an agreement together. He was very supportive of that. And then that agreement actually allowed tribal courts to hear uh, uh, Indian children's cases that were taken from Native families in the state, which is a huge uh, step forward for our communities. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it, it really changed things. But... As I sit here today, I must tell you that I still am vigilant. I still have no confidence in the DHHS, um, basically because they, when I ask about our open cases, they don't seem to know. And it's very concerning to me again. You know, I had asked the... I don't want to say names, but uh, the DHS people, the appropriate people, how many cases do we have? Two. I don't believe it. And I feel like mm-hmm. there's still things going on and still things that need to be resolved. Months and months later, I'm, I'm complaining, saying, I know we have more than two cases. Turns out we have 20. Wow. That many. Like, how can I still feel confident about what's happening and yeah I <sighs> certainly understand that uh, and I'm st- as long as I'm chief I'm gonna be still if it's only me as the chief of the tribe voicing concerns you will hear them so that is a one of the top current concerns yes. that you have yes I'm always vigilant about that do you uh, do you have any plans uh, in the near future to maybe have a meeting with uh, um, the attorney general's office? Yes, I would like to do that. Yeah. Yes, before um, the end of my term. Yes. And the end of your term is is um, it'll be probably a year and five and a half months. You're smiling. You look like you're happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still you know, feel I have a lot to do in that time period. And um, one thing about the position of being tribal chief is it's been an honor and I'm very humbled to have to be able to work with some of the issues I have and incredible people I've met and so inspired me to even work harder. I mean, when when we hold our community meetings and you hear much negativity and 
in the thoughts of your members, it makes me work harder for them because I'm their voice right now. And that's how I've always felt. You know, I'm your voice, I will st- and I will stand up for what's right. I always say, do the right thing and it'll never go wrong. Do the right thing. And, um, you know, I never thought I really had it in me to do that. But throughout, you know, the things that have happened with the seats, I felt that I had to. I had to do that. And not just, you know, myself making these strides. It's a big team effort. And also, um, the other tribes have always been there for us. When when we've needed them, we've really needed them, they have come forth. And we say that to them, too. When you need us, you, we will be there for you, which we have in the past, too, when um, the state wanted the... NIPTES, the uh, environmental uh, authority for... Um, for licensing the... Uh, yeah. yeah. We were there, for even the, though yeah, they the weren't... Paper companies. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, we yeah. came and stood with the signs, and we, we came and rallied and said, how can we help? Because that was an important yeah. issue. Well, I do remember, too, that, you know, just about every legislative issue we had there, you were down there. That's 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 how I got to know you. You were there all the time, um, and uh, and you you testified in just about every issue, and uh, it was very uh, very important to us to have your your support and your backing, and uh, you became a very uh, respected figure in the halls of that legislature and in the governor's office. So you know I thank you for all of that support, um, and. Uh, you, you know, the Holton Band has come a long, long way since 1970, and since the uh, the uh, the bulldozing of that mm. those those shacks and yeah. And one thing I've seen over the past well, I've been in all I'll be in office 16 years. Wow, I've noticed that because of how the Malseats were treated terribly in the past, they didn't feel like they had a voice or they felt unimp- they didn't feel empowered. Mm-hmm. They felt quite scared about um, addressing issues with downtown uh, programs that maybe things were going on. But I feel um, that I am there to help them be empowered and be there for them. But let them speak and have, you know, their voice yep. back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, that you've accomplished that. I think you've given them their voice back. Uh, so I want to thank you for uh, for agreeing to come on the show. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Ralph Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, Brenda Commander, Chief Brenda Commander, for joining us today, uh, and our engineer, Amy Brown. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs>